All right, good morning. As mentioned last week, I'm a preacher, not a teacher, so I'm going to stand up with this makeshift pulpit again. Um, if you want to hear these messages again, they are online. This one will be online tonight. If you want to go back and try to regurgitate some of this, I'm speaking pretty fast with a lot of information. So they are online on my website, uh, fpgm.org, and you can go to the podcast link at the top and listen to those online. So, last week, uh, just for review's sake, we talked about our, our subject matter concerns the handling of God's Word, something that we need to give attention to, especially when delving into uh, such a doctrinally important book as the Epistle to the Romans, which you've been doing in here exegetically. And my focus last week was the improper handling of God's Word. We talked about how we need to uh, be careful not to ignore God's Word, not to ration the Scriptures, that is, to fail to take into account God's whole counsel. We need to be careful that we do not corrupt the Scriptures or fall for corrupted uh, uh, approaches to the Scripture. We need not to rest it unto our own destruction. And most importantly, may we not reject the Word of God for the consequences are eternal and damnable. Um, God's Word is like a sword. The Bible says it's a double-edged sword piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Very much like the living Word. It says that Jesus in John chapter 2 did not commit Himself to men for He knew what was in men. He knew their thoughts. Just as Christ the living Word knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, so does the written Word. And it reveals itself to us and can tell us who we are in truth. The Bible is also spoken of as inspired. God breathed. In that context, Paul was not talking about some elusive original manuscripts in an original language. He was speaking of the Scriptures that Timothy knew as a child. Undoubtedly, uh, a translation of a translation, a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. But these were inspired because the God who inspires His Word preserves it perfectly for us. And that pure line of text is there for us. It's obvious what it is. Uh, and we can find God's Word preserved if we want it. But this being the case, God's Word is a sword. A sword can be a very dangerous weapon if not handled properly. We've got to wield it properly. And we've got to stay away from improper technique. Last week we talked about handling it improperly. Let's talk about the proper wielding of God's Word today. I think the key to understanding and applying God's Word is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It's a very simple statement, one which we should apply. Paul told Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. That's the key right there. We have got not only to study the Word, we've got to rightly divide it. That's what I want to talk about this morning. What is it to rightly divide the Word of truth? Well, first of all, in order to properly wield God's Word, we've got to wield it. In order to properly handle it, we've got to first of all handle it. Okay? I'm going to read you a statement made by Charles Spurgeon, that famous preacher, about handling the Word of God. It says, If this be the Word of God, what will become of some of you that have not read it for the last month? 
months, sir. I have not read it for this year. Aye, there are some of you who have not read it at all. Most people treat the Bible very politely. They have a small pocket volume, neatly bound. They put a white pocket handkerchief around it and carry it to their places of worship. When they get home, they lay it up in a drawer till next Sunday morning. Then it comes out again for a little bit of a treat and goes to chapel. That is all the poor Bible gets in the way of an airing. That is your style of entertaining this heavenly messenger. There is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. There are some of you who have not turned over your Bibles for a long, long while. And what think you? I tell you blunt words, but true words. What will God say at last? When you shall come before Him, He shall say, Did you not read my Bible? No. I wrote you a letter of mercy. Did you read it? No. Rebel, I have sent you a letter inviting you to me. Did you ever read it? Lord, I never broke the seal. I kept it shut up. Wretch, says God, then you deserve hell. I sent you a loving epistle. You would not even break the seal. What shall I do with you? Oh, let it not be so with us. Be Bible readers. Be Bible searchers. So in order to handle God's Word, we've got to handle it. We've got to pick it up. Pick it up. We've got to take it off the shelf. We've got to do more with it than bring it to church on Sunday. That's where it begins. But secondly, most of us do pick up our Bibles in here and read them. Hopefully that message wasn't directed toward us, but it could compel us to be even more in terms of studying the Scriptures. But before we approach God's Word and attempt to understand it and apply it, the first thing you need to remember is that like witnessing, like going out to share Christ, it must be bathed in prayer. It must be bathed in prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 gives us a little insight into the ability of man, his finiteness, and the necessity of God, the Spirit's illumination in our lives. Beginning at verse 9, it says, As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Most people don't read the next verse. But God hath revealed them to us by His Spirit. The things that eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard, they're already revealed to us right here in the Word by the Spirit of God. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things we also speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. My friends, we don't have the ability to understand the secrets of the Lord without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. If we want to understand God's Word and wield it properly, whether in personal study or in the preaching of the Gospel, we need to seek the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We need to ask Him to reveal Himself in His Word and give us an understanding. Too many people approach the Scriptures as if it were an ordinary man-made book. 
as if they don't need God. And that's why you come to a plethora of false and private interpretations that lead to all kinds of false doctrine. If we're going to approach God and we need His Spirit, Jesus further confirms this and He says in Matthew, I mean in Matthew chapter, um, uh, I think it's chapter 7, not chapter 7, I've got it written down here wrong, but He says, No man knoweth the Father but the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal Him. We can't even know God unless God the Son reveals God the Father to us. We're dependent upon the Lord. Psalm 25.14 says, The secrets of the Lord are with them that fear Him. You can't know the revelation of God unless you fear Him, first of all. So just as salvation is of the Lord, so is the understanding of God's revelation. If we go to God and ask Him to reveal Himself to us in His Word, in fervent prayer, we must ask another question. Are our prayers being heard by God? Or are they hindered? If we want to understand God's Word, we need to make sure our prayers aren't hindered. Psalm 66, the psalmist, one that feared and believed God, said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. If we have unconfessed sin in our life, we regard it in our heart, God won't hear our prayers. tells us that um, those that turn, a, turn their ear away from hearing the law of God, even their prayer is an abomination. So it's possible for our prayers to be sin against God, and God will not answer. Husbands in particular. It tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, to honor our wives as a weaker vessel that our prayers be not hindered. If we're not honoring and loving our wives as we're supposed to, guilty, then our prayers may be hindered. So if we're asking God to open up His Word, and particularly us husbands, our relationship with our wives isn't where it should be, then our prayers may be hindered. These are things we need to address when properly handling God's Word, to bathe it in prayer, to get unconfessed sin out of our lives, and to approach the book in faith. If we approach it in doubt, we will not understand. In James 1, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth all things liberally. If we lack wisdom in the Word of God, let's ask Him for it. But, let him ask in faith, nothing doubting, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven of the winds and tossed. If we go to the Scriptures with doubt, then assuredly we will not be able to understand or apply them. We need to go to the Scriptures with the presupposition that what God has written is true. There are no contradictions. That Scripture agrees with Scripture and that every word of it is authoritative in its proper context. If we go to the Scriptures believing the lies of the Bible teachers and scholars that there's contradictions there, we'll find ourselves in a wave of doubt. I've never found a contradiction in the Word of God. I've never found an error in the Word of God. I've never found an error in the King James Bible, the Word of God given to us in English, and I don't apologize for that statement. Never found an error. Oh, many have accused Scriptures of being erroneous, and we'll see that today, but they're not there. And God reveals those truths to us in faith. We need to approach it in faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Bathe 
the study of the Word and prayer, approach it in faith, and get the unconfessed sin out of your life. Well, we're going to open the Word today with a particular passage of Scripture, and we're going to apply these next techniques to the Scripture and try to come to some application for our lives. I'm in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. I'm going to read a single verse, verse 49. This is a verse I've heard come up on the college campuses before. I've heard it come up on the streets as justification for the sin of homosexuality in this wicked, abominable American culture. It's been said that the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality. It was simply pride and idleness of hands. And this is cited as a proof text of that. Therefore, homosexuality is not a sin. Sodom and Gomorrah has been misinterpreted. And um, God loves all people and homosexuality is A-OK. Well, this is applicable to us because this is the wicked, corrupt, disgusting society we live in. And we need to know what God's Word really does have to say. Verse 49 in Ezekiel 16 says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Well, if we read that Scripture, that kind of rocks our understanding of Sodom and Gomorrah, does it not? Sodom's sin was pride, gluttony, idleness, and not helping the poor and needy. Well, if we let that Scripture stand on its own and don't seek godly wisdom, maybe that's the conclusion we'll come to. And as a result, we'll start looking at other passages of Scripture and maybe come up with a complete erroneous doctrine. Now, this is the type of thing that the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, in terms of, or the Sadducees, I'm sorry, in terms of the resurrection. They proof text. But Jesus answered them with the whole counsel of Scripture. You do err not knowing the Scriptures. God told Moses, I am the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, I mean the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, He's of the living. I am, not I was. But the first thing we need to do when we approach the Scriptures is we need to, number one, after we've bathed in prayer and confessed sin in our life, we need to take a closer look. Take a closer look. We can't skim through God's Word and hope to properly understand it. It's a deep wellspring of truth. In Isaiah 28, verse 9 and 10, it's, the Scriptures are spoken of, or the revelation of God is spoken of as precept upon precept, line upon line. Jesus even lifted up the jot and the tittle as important parts of the law. Okay? The jot and the tittle were a Hebrew punctuation mark and the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So even lines, words, punctuation is important. Every word, every comma must be looked at more closely. Let me give you a couple of examples of where we need to look closer to understand the truth. Acts chapter 7 verse 14, Stephen is preaching... In public, the sermon for which he was stoned by the religious leaders, and he's recounting the history of the people of Israel. Now, Stephen's obviously in a situation where his words are the difference between life and death. He's been accused by people of 
mismanaging the facts of Israel's history, particularly in this verse. But if you take a closer look, we understand the truth. In Acts chapter 7, verse 14, remember these are examples of applying what I'm talking about. We're going to actually apply these things to the Scripture at hand. Stephen says, Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred threescore and fifteen souls. In other words, Stephen says that seventy-five souls came down to Egypt to meet Joseph and his family. Well, that seems to be a problem on the surface because if you go to Genesis chapter 46, it tells us that only sixty-six souls came down. And then when you throw Jacob, Joseph, and Joseph's two sons in the mix, you have seventy. The entire house of Jacob was 70 souls in Egypt um, when they came down there. On the surface, this looks like a contradiction. And it makes us think that maybe Stephen was wrong. I've heard this said before. But we need to look closer. What does Stephen say here? He says, Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and... Jacob and... So obviously, Jacob's not part of this number. All his kindred... Three score and fifteen souls. Well, that word kindred there would include Jacob's sons' wives. Okay? Those that were called down to Egypt by Joseph were 66 people. That didn't include the wives of the sons. If you had the wives, nine, you get 75. Where do I get nine wives? Well, Joseph was already down in Egypt. Judah's was dead. If you read the book of Genesis... And then obviously Simeon's wife was dead because it tells us his youngest son was the wife, was the son of a Canaanitish woman. So that means nine wives plus 66 souls is 75. Stephen knew exactly what he's talking about. But we've got to take a closer look to come to that understanding. Numbers 2417, this is really important. I was witnessing to a Jewish person on a college campus not long ago. And this type of Jew claimed that only the Torah, only the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses were, Moses were authoritative. He didn't think the prophets or the Psalms or any of that was the Word of God. These are what, uh, this is typically a doctrine of Reformed Jews who can be very liberal in their understanding and application of the Scriptures. I was at a Reformed Jewish synagogue one time and the man preached out of Genesis where Jacob wrestled with God at that place called Penuel where Jacob said, I've seen God, I've wrestled with God and I have lived. And his application of that scripture was Jacob didn't really, Jacob was wrestling with his fears and all of this, just totally ignoring what the scripture had to say. And that's typical of Reformed Judaism. But the statement was made that there is only one coming of Messiah the Torah never speaks of two comings of Messiah. So how can you say Jesus is Messiah? Well, they believe that there's nowhere in the books of Moses. It didn't matter if I could show him something from the prophets. He didn't believe the prophets. So I'm getting a stew over this. Man, is, there's got to be something in the Torah that speaks of the two comings of Christ. Well, I found it. But in order to find it, I had to take a closer look. Numbers 24, Balaam is offering a prophecy about the Messianic kingdom. Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the Israelites and he couldn't do it. And we know that story. But during his prophecies in Numbers chapter 24, Balaam speaks about God. 
says in verse 16, He hath said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. In other words, Balaam saw God in a trance, and now he's going to describe. He says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite all the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Seth. He's talking about God Almighty. I see Him, but not now. And then he speaks of a star coming out of Jacob, and a scepter out of Israel. Who do you think he's talking about? It's a prophecy. Christ the Messiah. But if we look closer... The two comings of Christ are right there in that Scripture. He will come as a star out of Jacob, comma, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Christ came as a star out of Jacob. The wise men that came from the east were most likely Jews that had been, uh, whose families had been taken to Babylon and they settled there. Persian Jews. Sephardic Jews. When they saw that star, they knew this Scripture. That's why they came looking for the Messiah. Well, He came once as a star. He'll come again as a scepter. And that's why that comma's there. There's the two comings of Christ. But we've got to look closer. If we look closely at the Scriptures, we can find out some amazing truth. Well, let's go back to our focal passage and let's look closer. Sometimes in order to look closer, we've got to go beyond the verse. We often get into this chapter-verse mentality with the Scriptures, and we've got to go beyond that. The chapters and the verses are helpful. Years ago, when the Bible had no chapter or verse divisions, it would have been very difficult to find Scriptures. These are amazing tools that believers have given to us through the years to help us find things. But we need to remember they're just a guide. And the big, one of the biggest errors that we can commit in trying to apply and teach the Scriptures is to proof text. To limit our understanding or limit our reading to certain verses. Now there are verses that do stand alone in the truth they proclaim. John 3.16, John 14.6, Acts 4.12. But most Scriptures do not. They're part of a larger context. We've got to look at the surrounding verses. And the part of taking a closer look is asking what's before and what's after. Just on a side note, the first person to give us chapter divisions in the Bible was an English Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1300s. And the very first English Bible that had chapter divisions in it was Wycliffe's Bible in 1382. Wycliffe was, he was, he died a natural death, but the Catholic Church got his bones up out of the ground and burned him and threw him in the River Swift. And he gave us an English Bible a complete English Bible. On a side note, many have claimed that Wycliffe's Bible was translated from the Roman Catholic Latin Bible. And that's kind of the accepted fact today. When the reality is that's not true, um, Wycliffe never used that corrupt Bible that is the foundation for so many of our modern versions. He spoke of having Hebrew manuscripts. And all you got to do is read his Bible. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's Wycliffe's version. Well, the Catholic Bible says, seek first His kingdom. The word God's not in there. So I don't think Wycliffe was using that corrupt Latin Bible. He was using a pure line of text. The same line of text that our other English Bibles in the Middle Ages and down to the King James used to preserve God's Word. 
Luke 13, 3 and 5, Wycliffe says, unless you repent, you will also perish. Well, the corrupt Catholic Bible say, unless you do penance, you will perish. So Wycliffe was an instrument of God's preservation. He gave us the chapter divisions. The verse divisions didn't come for, 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 for many years later, over a hundred years later. 1448, almost, uh, or not quite a hundred years, but in 1448 there was a Jewish rabbi by the name of Nathan who gave us verse divisions in the Old Testament. And then Robert Estian, also known as Stephanus, he gave us a Greek New Testament and put the verses in there. It's, it's often said that Stephanus was fleeing persecution on her horseback and most of the verse divisions for the New Testament were put in there as he was fleeing persecution on horseback. His um, uh, Greek New Testament was used by the King James translators and was the basis for the Geneva Bible, which came out in 1560. It was the Bible of the pilgrims, and it was the first English Bible to have verses in it. So, the King James got its chapter divisions and its verse divisions from Wycliffe and the Geneva Bible. Just an interesting point in history. And thank God for these divisions. But we have to look beyond them. In our verse here, in order to understand what's going on, we've actually got to go beyond verse 49. Behold, this was the, the, the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Verse 50, And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, in other words, because they committed abomination, I took them away as I saw good. So my friends, Sodom's sin was not limited to these meager things stated at the beginning. Verse 50 says they committed abomination before God. The abomination was the result of those other things. And therefore, we got to ask ourselves, therefore, what is it therefore? Because of that abomination, God took them away and destroyed them. So, by taking a closer look, we understand that Sodom's sin resulted in abomination. And that abomination is why God took them away. If the abomination was pride, then I'd have to ask why any nation exists today. Why any human exists today. No, there was abomination. Well, we've got to take a closer look. And proceeding from this, we've got to mind the context of Scripture. The context of Scripture goes a little further than just a closer look at the passage. I've heard it said before, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Pretext is a deceitful or corrupt or, or erroneous understanding. A proof text is lifting out of Scripture and building a doctrine on it with no concern for the surrounding context. And that's more often than not what leads to false interpretation, misunderstanding of God's Word, and the false doctrines of all our denominations out here. Minding the context, what does this mean? Well, every Scripture passage has an immediate context. The immediate context is the surrounding verses. A lot of scriptures that have been misinterpreted or misunderstood or accused of not being genuine reflect a misunderstanding, those that are proponents of these things, 
of the surrounding context of Scripture. 1 John 5, 7 is a passage that clearly states the Trinity. It's the only place in the entire Bible that gives us a clear revelation of the Trinity. Elsewhere, that doctrine is inferred. Many have claimed that this shouldn't be part of the Bible. Almost every single modern English Bible cuts that verse out and then splits verse 8 and makes it 7 and 8. Through the King James Bible, that passage was preserved by God. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And then John goes on to say, there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and blood, and these three agree in one. Then he goes on to say, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Well, obviously, John is comparing two things. The witness of men is the witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Well, what's the witness of God? The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. If you take that passage out, then John's statement in context, the witness of men, the witness of God being greater, makes no sense. Because there is no witness of God that's been taken out. So if we look at the immediate context, we do and see that internally, the evidence for the verse's inclusion is there. Hebrews 6, passage that many fail to look at the immediate context and thereby come up with the crazy doctrine that genuine salvation, once attained by grace through faith, can be lost if we don't do something. Therefore, salvation is of the Lord in the beginning, but it's not of the Lord in the end. That is not biblical, and to cite Hebrews 6 as an example of that is to misinterpret Scripture and to ignore the immediate context. Hebrews 6, 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them unto repentance. Well, that's teaching you can lose your salvation. Well, if that's what it's teaching, then if we fall away, we can never come back, number one. But nobody ever goes on into the immediate context and down to verse 9. Verse 9 says, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So Paul is speaking of something different than what he's described. Things that accompany salvation. Well, if salvation is something different than what he's just described, then number one, it's, impo- it's possible to look like a Christian and not be. And number two, it's not talking about losing something that these people never had. So there's the understanding right there. It required the immediate context. One of my favorites is Psalm 2. It's the missionary passage everyone uses. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. Oh Lord, give me the heathen. I want to go to the ends of the earth. But they never read the next verse. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That psalm's talking about Messiah. The reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth after His coming. He will break the nations with a rod of iron. He will dash the wicked into pieces like a potter's vessel. To claim Psalm 2, verse 7, as missions ignores the immediate context. We cannot be guilty of these things. Well, I've just read into verse 50. That's the immediate context of Ezekiel 16.49 that they committed abomination. 
Beyond immediate context, we need to consider the general context of Scripture. That would include the chapter, the surrounding chapters. If it's a short epistle, perhaps the entire epistle. In order to understand something in a passage, we need to know the general context. Hebrews 10 is another one of those passages that is spoken of as teaching the loss of salvation. Well, if you understand the general context of Hebrews, the surrounding chapters, the whole book, we understand, number one, Paul is writing to Jews. Paul has explained that the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow of better things to come. And then he's explained that that sacrificial system has been done away with because Christ was the fulfillment of it and the ultimate sacrifice. Well, if we understand those things, we can read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, with a more clear understanding. Or not verse 39. It says, um, verse 26, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. This isn't talking about someone sinning after they're saved and then losing salvation. Paul is writing to Jews. He's just explained that the Old Testament sacrifices are not efficacious anymore. So what he's saying is you've got two choices, Jews... It's Christ or it's judgment. Because you can take your animals to the temple and you can keep spilling their blood, but there is no sacrifice anymore in that. It's in Christ. So Christ or judgment. That's a totally different understanding there. We can't divorce the general context of Jews being the recipients of this letter. It doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us. And that Christ being the ultimate sacrifice is done away with those other sacrifices. So in other words, there is no more sacrifice for sins in terms of offering up an animal. God doesn't accept that anymore. The general context helps us to understand. Revelation 3.20, the general context tells us the meaning of this passage. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice I will, and opens up to me, I will come in and sup with him. That's not talking about the door of our heart. The general context is the church of Laodicea. The letter to the church. The church that was lukewarm. That God said He would spit out of His mouth. And then the first three chapters of Revelation are letters to the seven churches. The context is the church. And Jesus there is standing on the outside of the church. Much like many churches today. He's knocking. But we're too busy with our man-centered doctrine our CEO business mentality, and our feel-good churchianity to open the door. Therefore, such churches will be vomited from the Lord's mouth. That's the, con- the general context tells us right there what that Scripture is talking about. It's funny, I was writing on Facebook the other day. I don't typically get into these debates on there, but I found it interesting reading uh, through... Acts, um, Acts chapter 26, Paul is standing before Agrippa and he basically sums up his entire ministry to both Jew and Gentile. And he sums it up, or his strategy was this, show them that they must repent and turn toward God. In other words, Paul's ministry was summed up as preaching repentance and calling people to turn toward God. And then I just, I just cited that and I made a statement about... Um, you know, Paul doesn't mention anything here about building relationships or this or doing all of this stuff. He talks about preaching repentance. And any ministry that doesn't preach repentance, 
does not follow in the footsteps of Paul and is not ministry at all. Well, that invited a whole slew of comments. One man responded to me and says, Mr. Boyd seems to ignore the hundreds of other scriptures that talk about preaching through service, especially something like Isaiah 58, where God talks about a fast of helping the needy and doing all this. What I found interesting is this man ignored the general context of Isaiah 58, because the very first verse in that chapter says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgressions. So all I needed to do was cite that scripture, point, set, match. He ignored the general context. Reaching out to those begins with preaching repentance. If you look at the general context of Isaiah 58. Well, what's the general context of Ezekiel 16? What, how are we going to understand what God means by they committed abomination before me? Well, let's just go, let's just look solely at chapter 16. As I go down through here and read, here's the, Terms that I find on multiple occasions. Harlotry, whoredoms, fornication, lewd, whore, harlot, abominations, adultery, lewdness, whoredoms, fornication, time, time, time again. Well, the general context proves that abomination in this passage has a sexual connotation. Wickedness. The same abomination committed by Sodom and the other nations of the ancient Near East were being committed by Judah. Judah was a harlot, a prostitute. Those words have no meaning aside from a sexual connotation. So obviously, verse 50, that abomination was one of a sexually perverse nature that Sodom had committed. That fits the context. Well, Immediate context, general context. We gotta also consider the entire context of Scripture. The entire context of Scripture. Jesus tells a parable, um, in Matthew 13 and Luke 13, and he says the, in Matthew he says the kingdom of heaven, which is the physical, bodily kingdom of Jesus Christ when he sets that up as a king upon his return. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took a little leaven and stuck it in three measures of meal and then the whole lump was leavened. Luke tells us that the kingdom of God, which is the spiritual kingdom of Christ reigning in our hearts, and one day that physical and that spiritual kingdom will become one when Jesus is king over the earth, that, that the kingdom of God is like a woman that took a little leaven and leavened the whole lump. And typically this, these passages are interpreted as a little truth goes out into the world and great things happen. The whole lump is leavened and wow, we have this great age and golden age of peace on earth. Well, if we understand the entire context of Scripture, we know that leaven is not a good thing. Leaven was not to be in the Passover meal. Jesus warned of the leaven of the Pharisees. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us to purge ourselves of the old leaven. Galatians tells us a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Beware. So the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is like a woman who took a little error and threw it into God's revelation until everything was wrong. That's the proper understanding. And we need to be careful of that. 
We can be guilty of allowing a little leaven to leaven the whole lump of our understanding of God's Word. That's not a positive thing. It's a negative thing for which the entire context of Scripture tells us. Well, what does the entire context of Scripture tell us about Sodom and Gomorrah? We must consider that when we look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Well, Genesis 19, the men of the city came banging on the door, bring those men out to us that we may know them. Well, know them means that we may have sex with them. I mean, Adam knew his wife and she brought forth a son, called him Cain. Okay? Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. The men of Sodom wanted to rape those men. Homosexuality, perversion. Jude 7 is even clearer about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude verse 7 says this, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Strange flesh is fornicating with some, some flesh that's unnatural. Man with man. Strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Well, the entire context of Scripture tells us that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was wickedness, homosexual perversion. It wasn't simply pride and fullness of bread. Well, taking this into consideration, what is Ezekiel telling us? Ezekiel is telling us that simple Seemingly inconsequential sins can lead to something far more abominable and ultimate destruction. What we saw in Sodom was a downspiraling of morality that culminated in homosexual perversion, fornication, whoredom, and sodomy. What began as pride and fullness of bread led to idleness. Idleness leads to rejecting and neglecting the needs of the poor and needy. What does that lead to? Abomination. And abomination leads to judgment. So the entire context of Scripture does not limit Sodom's sin. It shows us here in Ezekiel 16 that it didn't begin with that. It began with something far more subtle. Culminating in what Jude tells us. Fornication and strange flesh. We've got to mind the context. The immediate, the general, and the entire context of Scripture. Now, I don't want to get into this today, but we we also need to consider the historical context. What, where, who, when, and why. Who's writing this? Who are they writing to? Why? What's the historical context? Okay? In terms of historical context, the word sodomy means homosexual sex, and it has meant that for hundreds of years, going back to the days of Wycliffe in the English language. So I, I dare say that three, four, five, six hundred years of English-speaking Christians didn't get it wrong, and now all of a sudden a bunch of homosexuals today have the right understanding. No. It doesn't work that way. And then we also need to consider, in seeing the Scriptures, not particularly here, but the dispensational context. When is this taking place? Is God talking to Jew? Or is he talking to Gentile? Was this before Christ came and gave his life as a sacrifice? Or is it after Christ came and did away with the sacrificial system? Was this before the law? 
Was it after the law? Was it part of the law? The dispensational context will help us to understand. A lot of people point to Genesis chapter 1. Adam and Eve in the garden, God had given them food, fruit and vegetables to eat. And Well, that's better. I'm not going to eat any meat. And they point to that passage. Well, that ignores the dispensational context because that was before the flood. And God told Noah after the flood, I've given you meat to eat. I've given you meat to eat. So you're not more holy if you eat vegetables. God's given us meat to eat. We can't ignore the dispensational context either. Well, this brings us to what I think is the key of everything I'm saying today. And it really is, we're kind of building here. One leads to the other. Take a closer look. Mind the context. And then we must be able to interpret Scripture with Scripture. This is the essence of rightly dividing the word of truth. Interpreting Scripture with Scripture. John Wycliffe, the great translator, who was hated by the Roman Catholic Church, who was one of the Lollards, they went out and they preached in the streets at the peril of their own lives. And they preached repentance and faith. Not some gooey-gooey mishmash that you hear in the churches in America today. He said this, One passage of Scripture explains another better than any gloss. A gloss is an interpretation, a marginal note, a footnote, maybe a commentary, or something else. If you want to understand Scripture, let Scripture explain it to you. Let those plain and easy to understand Scriptures interpret those that are more obscure. Never make the mistake of letting obscure Scriptures interpret what is plain. This is a fatal mistake. Matthew 12, Luke 11, Jesus speaks of the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. And people down through the ages have claimed lots of things that this means. Well, if you don't interpret Scripture with Scripture, you may come to a wrong conclusion because Mark tells us exactly what the unpardonable sin is. Mark tells that story. Mark 3.29 And we can only interpret Matthew and Luke by looking at Mark because Mark is plain. The others are obscure. Mark 3.29 But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Verse 30 Because they said, He, Jesus, hath an unclean spirit. What's the, abom- what's the unforgivable sin? Claiming that Jesus in the flesh was demon-possessed. Is it even possible for us to commit that sin today? Is my question. Jesus isn't here in the flesh right now. So perhaps not. But at best, the unforgivable sin is to reject that Jesus Christ came from God and that He was God manifest in the flesh. Well, duh. To reject that makes you guilty. And there is no forgiveness through penance. There is no forgiveness through religion. There is no forgiveness through begging God at the judgment seat. You've rejected Christ. You've treated Him as if He was just a demon-possessed man. Therefore, there is no forgiveness. The unforgivable sin is to reject Christ. There's the answer. Comparing Scripture with Scripture. And as Paul said there, back at the beginning I read from 1 Corinthians, comparing spiritual with spiritual. Wow. Think about Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged. The favorite passage of the non-believer. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, we've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. John 7.24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Well, Jesus tells us to judge righteous judgment. So Matthew 7 must not be saying never judge. It's telling us not to judge a certain type of judgment. If you read the context there, Jesus is speaking of hypocritical judgment. We proclaim judgment on someone else according to a standard that we're not willing to apply to ourselves. Righteous judgment is pronounced judgment according to God's revelation. Homosexuality is a sin. In preaching that, I'm not holding myself to a different standard. Because it's as much a sin for me as it is for the other man. For me, perhaps more so, because I ought to know the truth, because God saved me. Jesus said, don't judge hypocritical judgment, but judge righteous judgment. Abortion is murder. Righteous judgment. It would be murder if my wife did it, just as much as it would be for someone walking into the clinic down in Charlotte. Jesus is not saying don't judge. He's saying don't judge hypocritically. And comparing Scripture with Scripture proves that. Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. People let that verse stand alone, or they go to some obscure passages in Acts to try to define filling of the Spirit. It can look this way or that way. It could involve falling on the floor, raising your hand, shouting, shaking uncontrollably. No. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Ephesians 5.18 is obscure. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, let's find a plain Scripture. Acts 4.31 In the place where they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Well, that defines it right there. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is speaking the Word of God with boldness. It's being a bold witness. And therefore, Ephesians 5 is defined. Comparing Scripture with Scripture. What's really important is we need to make sure there are Old Testament citations throughout the New Testament. Jesus quoted it. Peter, Paul. Go back to the Old Testament Scripture and see what the Holy Spirit said in the beginning. Consider how the Holy Spirit has um, paraphrased it or commented on The Holy Spirit has the perfect right to offer commentary on something He wrote before. And a lot of times these things are important. In Luke 4.19, I just love sharing some of this stuff. Hopefully it will give you a, an insight into studying the Scripture. But in Luke 4.19... Um, well, a little bit before that, Jesus was in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth and He was handed a copy of the prophet Isaiah and He opened the book and He read a passage. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He hath anointed Me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent Me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus was defining His ministry on earth at that time. And he was reading from Isaiah 61. But if you go back and look at Isaiah 61, it's very interesting where Jesus stopped in the passage. And he did it on purpose. Because the rest of that passage fulfillment is for a future time. And there again we have the two comings of Christ. Look where Jesus stopped. Isaiah 61 basically says the same thing. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus' ministry was twofold. To come and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and at some future time the day of the vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped there on purpose because He was defining His first advent. 
And what an amazing kernel of truth there that we come upon when we look and compare Scripture with Scripture. Interpreting obscure passages with those that are plain. Back to Ezekiel 16. That's obscure. What's he talking about here? Or what's plain about Sodom? Jude 6 and 7 is very plain. I've already cited it this morning. It's very plain. And with this we must interpret that passage there in Ezekiel. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. What is plain is that Sodom and Gomorrah were examples of what happens to societies that completely give themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, i.e. homosexuality. They're an example. They're an example that Judah should have known but rejected. Therefore, sodomy, sexual abomination, was plainly the sin that caused God's destruction to come. That is plain. Therefore, we must interpret Ezekiel chapter 16 accordingly. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And, that word can mean as a result in Hebrew, they were haughty and they committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Well, the abomination is clearly defined by plain Scriptures in Genesis and Jude. Therefore, our understanding of this Scripture is affected. What started out in Sodom as pride led to abomination. Sin is a downward spiral. We see this in the book of Judges. Little sin gets worse and worse and worse. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Pride might not seem like that big of a deal in our lives, but my friends, it's the starting point for wickedness, sexual perversion, all that is unnatural and rebellious against God. Comparing Scripture with Scripture, the context, taking a closer look, also tells us that the ultimate rebellion of a society against God is manifested in the acceptance of homosexual sin. We see this in history with Rome and other nations, other empires that were were, uh, eroded from within. And it was at that point in society when things fell apart. So, the homosexual that justifies his sin today through ignoring the context of this passage commits a grave error. Just like the Sadducees who claim there was no resurrection. They do err not knowing the Scriptures. Well, we've got to Look closer. We've got to mind the context. Specific, general, entire. We've got to interpret Scripture with Scripture. But friends, it doesn't end there. As important as seeking the Holy Spirit's understanding, as important as approaching the Scriptures by faith, when we are done, we must tremble before the Word of God. We must apply it. We must ask ourselves, what is God saying to us 
And if we're in sin or we're negligent, we must tremble before the Word of God. People today preach a God that we need not fear. God doesn't want us to fear Him, even though Peter says fear God in his first epistle. Oh, we don't need to fear God. God's a God of love. He's a great... Want your dreams to come true. No. God says in Isaiah 66 that this is the man to whom I will look. One that trembles at my word. One who is of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. He goes on to say, if we'll tremble at His word. Hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at His word. Your brethren hated you. They cast you out for my name's sake saying, Let the Lord be glorified, but He shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. When we tremble before the Word of God, we'll be the object of mockery from people both in the world and in the church. But God says to tremble at His Word means we will appear. He will appear to our joy, and they shall be ashamed. We must tremble before the Word of God. We must make application. James chapter 1, I told you last week, says that we need to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Those that only hear the Word is like someone looking into a mirror at their reflection and then they turn away and they forgot what they've seen. They've got to keep going back. If we'll be doers of the Word, not only will we properly apply it to our lives and be godly, we will remember what we have read. The key to remembering what we have read is to practice what we have read. Understanding Scripture ultimately ends with making application to our lives. I believe God will speak directly to our lives and our situations through Scripture. Yes, every Scripture has a historical context. Yes, it's written directly to certain types of people. But it does not mean that the principles therein are not applicable to our lives. The Old Testament examples were given for our instruction, Paul says. Make application to our lives. Well, how can we apply this Scripture in Ezekiel chapter 16? We've looked at the context. We've taken a closer look. We've looked at the rest of Scripture. We see that sin is a down spiral that begins with pride and can culminate in sexual perversion for which God overthrowed Sodom and Gomorrah. How do we apply it? We apply it by looking at our nation today. The exact same down spiral has occurred Years ago, we became prideful. We thought we were the greatest nation in the earth. We were the most powerful, the biggest military. Going back to after World War II, pride. Pride led to abundance. There was abundance after World War II in this country. People had cars, people had homes, people had careers. Things got easier with technology and with easy living comes idleness. We don't have anything better to do than to spend hours on Facebook. So we don't need to work hard. We don't need to till the land. We don't need to strive for these things that come seemingly so automatic. Well, this idleness eventually leads to neglect. The church has neglected society. We've neglected the poor and the downtrodden. We've neglected God's creation and these things have been picked up by wicked men who use them for their own ends. And then... From that neglect comes abomination. Going back to the women's rights movements and the civil rights movements and abortion and sexual perversion and adultery left and right. More than 50% of marriages end up in divorce. Preachers preaching that divorce is okay. 
all of these things. Churches here in Catawba County celebrating gay, gay pride weekend. It all ends in abomination. And for Sodom, that wicked abomination brought destruction. For Israel and for Judah, that wicked abomination brought captivity. And friends, for America, the abominable wickedness of our society spells doom. It's as good as done. America is doomed. I do not put my hand over my heart. I read a a newspaper article this week about a college professor that refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And it was in a conservative news outlet and they were bashing her. But there is one thing where I do not, I will agree with my liberal counterpart. Neither do I say the Pledge of Allegiance to this wicked nation. My allegiance is to God and to Jesus Christ. We are doomed like Sodom of old. But our sins are worse than Sodom. Just like Judah's was worse than Sodom. We knew the truth and we rejected it. Jesus said, If any man hear my words and receive them not, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Because if one such, such words had been spoken there, they would have repented. You know how horrible are the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. But for all the young people that have sat in meetings in this country and heard the Gospel time and time again and have not believed upon it, but have lived in their sin, that is wickedness beyond imagination. And that is the doom of this nation. I love this nation for what it once was, but not what it has become. It's become a laughingstock. Our president addressed the National Prayer Breakfast two days ago and he spoke of asking Jesus Christ to be his Lord and Savior back when he went through the communities as a community organizer and how pastors and lay people showed him Jesus and he asked Christ to be his Lord and Savior. I quoted this on my Facebook page the other day and then in my statement was, <laughs> That's a good one, Mr. President. What a joke. We're in a place in America when someone can claim to be a Christian and sanction the murder of the unborn children. Can say that homosexuality is okay, that the Bible is just a book written by men, and that Christians should never go out and preach the Gospel. That's abomination. It's the ultimate end of man's rebellion in that downward spiral. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50 has much to teach us. It warns us of what is to come. It tells us what has been. And by default, it compels us to watch and be ready for the coming of the Lord and to take things in our lives, even as seemingly insignificant as pride, as a warning bell to greater sin. All of us are capable of such wickedness, but for the grace of God. And if pride is the starting point, then we need to cut it off at the root to protect ourselves and to be a light to our wicked society. God save the United States. So my friends, this is how to properly handle the Word of God. Last week we spoke of mishandling it. We dare not ignore it. We dare not ration it. We dare not corrupt it, rest it, or reject it. We must look at it closely. Study to show thyself approved unto God. We must mind the context We must interpret Scripture with Scripture, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And we must apply it, or else it's no different than sitting down and reading a novel. Unless we apply it. To apply it is to tremble before it, to believe it in faith, 
and to do it. So I hope these things will help you. I know I've run long, but I really wanted to teach through this and give you some examples of what I'm talking about and actually apply this to a scripture today. And I encourage you all to think through these things in your personal Bible study and as you go forward into the meat of the book of Romans. I believe you're into chapter 5 now. And these, these scriptures must be interpreted with scripture. You get into Romans 9 through 11 about the Jews and about Israel. Interpreting scripture with scripture in the context makes it clear that God is not done with his people. He made promises to them. He called out Gentiles to his name, but he will perform what he said. Therefore, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They will prosper that love thee. And I can tell you right now, everything that's happening in the Middle East today is all about Israel. Keep an eye. When you see these things come, begin to come to pass, lift up your heads and rejoice, for your redemption draweth nigh. I'll just go ahead and close us so we can get moving. I'll pray for the prayer. Or actually, I'll ask Matthew to do that. And um, again, these messages will be online if you want to go back and listen to them. And I pray they were a blessing. Matthew. Thank you, God. <laughs>